Hi, I'm Mary Lyons, The Wealth Woman. I'm Eric Alexander with Benchmark Income Group. Welcome to the Big Wealth Podcast. Today, we are going to answer a question that I have been asked probably five or six times in the past week or two. Um, and that question is, if index funds outperform money managers most of the time, why would I ever hire someone to manage my money? That's a good question, right? Yeah, it's, um, the, perennial, it's the perennial question. Do I, do, do I use a robot or a human? Right. It's the, right. Do I just buy an index and leave it alone and never look at it? Or do I want someone who's going to be actively making changes to the portfolio? And, and it is interesting because when you start looking at the data of all the money managers in existence and the indexes, the indexes are generally going to outperform the managers who are competing with them. And so it really does beg the question, why would you actually sure. do that? So I, I just want to start uh, with the surface and say, when you think about it, if you have unlimited amount of time and you can put the money into the index and you can stomach losses like we saw in a 2008 time period, right, that 2007 to 2009, where you could maybe be okay losing 55% of your portfolio in a year's time period, then by all means, go to an index. But if you cannot stand to see losses in your account, I think that changes the dynamic of what you're really trying to accomplish because preservation of the assets that you have built and getting more, not, I don't want to say predictable, but um, that's almost the word I'm looking for, more, more steady growth with less huge roller coaster swings, then that says that you need a money manager to take a look at your accounts. So it's, it's a, it depends on your goals, right? If you're swinging for the fences and you're just looking for your home runs, I'm not entirely sure that the market is where I would put my money for that. Am I allowed to say that as a right. financial advisor? Right. Um, but if I am looking to preserve capital that I've built, keep up with inflation or outpace it, um, and, and just make sure that I'm making forward progress, then I think the market becomes a place that you can look at as far as where you have your money. And especially if your money's coming from 401ks where you're getting the matches, I think it makes lots of sense. So Eric, you and I were having this conversation last, last week about, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, why, why money managers. And I thought you had some really interesting insight when it came to timeframes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that the leading Thing I always kind of think through on this one is nothing in my life gets better when I'm passive. And so <laughs> from a standpoint of this idea of just set it and forget it, and, and I think the time frame comes in there, is it, it depends. If I look at it over a 50, 60, 70 year time frame, yeah, the index probably beats the manager, right? And as you and I have talked about, I think 4 million times, um, not everyone is, everyone is risk uh, what was it? Everyone is return tolerant. Not everyone is risk tolerant. And so I think yeah, part of it I is think I'm usually the butt of that joke. I think I'm yeah, the yeah. butt of that joke when we talk well, about it. There's times. so few, I get to have you be on the other end of the joke. So I just keep using that one over and over again. But yeah, I think part of it is the time frame, right? If I'm, if I'm 20 years old and I'm retiring 40, 50, 60 years from then, then yeah, dump it in an index, be done with it and, and go about your day and just forget it. Right, because you have you have time, you have lots and lots of time to go sort of deal with the slings and arrows, right? But I'm I'm 45. I've got two decades to go. I and it really depends on what the market looks like over the next decade and the next decade after that. And if we have a really great decade like the 90s, 
then man, I can do all sorts of dumb stuff and come out good. If I'm in the lost decade, 2000 to 2010, uh, there's not much I can do and come out right. good, right? right? And so I think the the idea that what's the, I forget who said it, but the famous economist said, right, well, in the long run, we're all dead. So, I mean, <laughs> in the long run, yeah, probably yeah. so, but I got to live day to day. And, and right. I think that's where the manager versus the index comes in. And, and the other concept on that that I think is useful is we always look at the S&P 500 as sort of the benchmark. Am I beating the market? Mm -hmm. Well, in a, we use a program uh, to measure risk and it, the, the program runs from zero to hundred. Zero's little old lady who lives in a shoe. Like a speed limit for your risk tolerance. Yeah, and, and 100 is Vegas. I, I don't know what the problem is, but I wanna put everything on red every day. So the S&P 500 is kind of in the 70s, mid 70s to, to upper 70s. And I don't know very many people that have actually taken that test that actually live up in that stratosphere. Most people right. that we meet are in the kind of 40 to 60 range, which means they shouldn't be chasing the market because they, they don't have the risk tolerance for it. They don't have the stomach. Well, and I'm going to go back to kind of the, the joke of which I am frequently the butt, right? The, um, the idea that we are return tolerant, but not risk tolerant, because I feel like that's something that people need to hear a lot more frequently than they actually do. And th right. this happened because even with my own portfolio, having it invested and growing and being like, woo, I'm getting all the returns. And in that moment, everything feels really good. But the moment you start losing money, it's amazing um, how that changes, right? And I'll speak to it personally, but I have a couple of friends who have similar, who came out with similar risk profiles and about the same time frame. we are all like, no, I'm not comfortable losing any of this, right? We, we tend to equate, I'm taking risk to I'm getting return. And that's not necessarily true. Sometimes we take risk and we take more risk than we should for the amount of return that we're actually getting. And so it's possible, it, it, right? Right. Most people take risk tolerance questionnaires thinking about the returns they want, right. not thinking about the amount of loss they can stomach. And when you change that to how much do you want to lose, it's amazing how frequently the risk tolerance changes pretty dramatically. Right? right. And so, you know, when you, when you start looking at that, Eric, talk to me again about, like, I, I look at this and I, I'm going to use your kind of roller coaster analogy here, but like when I was young, I loved roller coasters just in general at the theme park. Right. I'm like, woo, that's going to be exciting. And I just turned 40. And now I'm like, I don't want to go on a roller coaster. That's probably going to hurt my back. Like it's a, it's a totally different, what used right. to be exciting. Now I'm like, Oh, I'm not interested in that. I give me, give me a smooth ride. Give me something that, right, you know, right. that doesn't have all that freak out moment in there. And, and I think that that happens as we get closer to retirement and our portfolios too, when we're young, we, we kind of get excited by those big swings. And then as we get closer and closer to that angle where we know we're not going to be putting money into it, I think things start to shift a little bit and your priorities change. And to me, it's almost that change of priority that creates the space for money managers. Right. Well, I always call it the juice worth the squeeze problem. Uh, when, I, when I was a kid, I, I loved, and I still do, I love snow skiing because the enjoyment I get out of it versus the fear that I'm going to die is 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 in the right balance, right? Uh, I tried mountain biking and five minutes into mountain biking, I, I ended up over my handlebars 
And I quickly figured out that I don't like the the joy of the ride is really small compared to the risk that I'm going to go like smash my face. So what what the industry has done is kind of figured out that juice versus squeeze is something called the efficient frontier. And it's this idea and we'll pull up a picture here in a second for for the uh, for those that see this uh, visually, but uh, yeah, that are watching. But it's this idea that what is my for each level of risk that I'm willing to take? What's the potential gain for that return? for that for that level of risk and based on your risk tolerance where should you be on that curve and it sort of looks like a hook it sort of looks like a fish hook the way they the way they do it i'll see if i can pull it up and have this not end badly i can see but, it right now yeah and so what the what the curve looks like and if you look at it from 1960 through 2010 it's this very sort of neat line it looks like a fish hook where on the equity side of it, stock market side, the, the S&P 500 side, for every incremental step and in risk I take, I get a little bit more in return. So it's kind of what you you're taking, would You're taking big steps in terms of risk and you get right. very small steps in terms of return. Right, 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 exactly. But then as you go the other way, so if you head towards more of a fixed income or a bond portfolio, there's a point at which if you have an all 100% bond portfolio, you're actually taking more risk than you would in a slightly heavier equity portfolio because you've got a bunch of interest right in a diversified portfolio because you've got a little bit more interest rate risk than you did on the other side of it. And because of the nature of the safety of bonds, you're not getting the same level of return. And so everybody kind of fits on that, that scale. But again, to your timing point, which I thought was brilliant, whenever we look at the efficient frontier, we look at it from 1960 to 2010 in this picture. Right. The problem is, right. is there's a lot of decades in the middle of that that don't look anything like this picture. Well, maybe I started at a different time, right? I mean, right. It, whether it's a different year or a different month or a different day can make a huge difference. And that's part of the problem, I think, when you're when you're just the, oh, well, I can just buy the index. Because what happens right. if I did that and I just bought the index and my retirement date was, you know, the middle of 2008? Well, at that point right. in time, I have completely destroyed my ability to retire because half of my money is gone if it was all just sitting in the S&P 500, right? right. And, and that, that goes to really understanding what your goals are. If you've got time and your goal is high yield, that's a fine strategy. But as you approach right. the time period where you maybe aren't going to put as much in, that's, that's part of the reason that people talk about getting more conservative is that they don't have the ability to recover from major losses. And so really, at least when we look for managers, we aren't always looking for the managers that are trying to hit the home runs 100% of the right. time. Right. We want managers who are going to manage that downside risk because the returns over time are going to take care of themselves. And, right. and there's not as much to recover from. Will you talk a little bit about um, standard deviation? Because I'm thinking specifically about um, how we talk to clients when we're talking about the day-to-day -day risk versus kind of the extreme risk time periods. Right. And, and, and even how managers talk about that, I think is very important. So will you speak to that piece for just a minute, Eric? Sure. Well, and I think most managers are talking in that 2000 or uh, 1960 through 2010 worldview, I think is m most advisors, most managers, we're, we're kind of looking at that long term, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that that sort of 
flows out of how we talk about risk. We're like, well, in the long range, it's about X, right? So if you yeah. think about the bell curve from high school, uh, everybody wanted to be somewhere in the middle of the bell curve because you, you, you get the best grade. So the, the middle of the bell curve, what we call that first standard deviation means that about two thirds of the time, everybody's kind of living in that range. If you look at grades, if you look at the market, that it kind of holds true. And when most managers talk about risks, they're talking about that first standard deviation, which means how much will the portfolio fluctuate left or right, up or down in the market in that, in that range? So two okay. thirds of the time, the S&P 500 is going to be up or down roughly 18 to 18 and a half percent, which means it could be as high as 18 and a half up and as high as 18 and a, as low as 18 and a half percent down right. most of the time. Right. So if and I so, say, if I say I'm comfortable, you know, seeing a 20% loss in my portfolio, because I'm hoping for a 20% upside, the S&P right. could make sense. Right. Yeah. Cause you're thinking, Hey, all right, well, that's the standard move and on a day-to-day -day basis. Let's go sign me up. The problem is, is we don't always live in a first standard deviation world, right? There are second and third standard deviation events that happened, 2001, 2008. Uh, there, there's big, you know, uh, March of 2020. There's big moves well, that let's, shift. Let's, let's be clear about those time periods too, because we don't always get a lot of warning that they're coming, right? Absolutely. Sometimes they are caused by factors that are completely outside of our control, right? So in hindsight, we can always say, oh yeah, that there were signs, right? But leading up to it, that doesn't right. mean that people recognize those signs. Well, and, and the way you know they're unrecognizable is we didn't change any of our behavior. Right. If we knew it was coming, we wouldn't have had the problem. Right. So that's that's why they're called black swans. It's because we're not we're expecting to see a bunch of white geese or white swans will flow by. We're not expecting a black one to go floating by, right? So in those so second and third standard deviation events, especially in 2007 to 2009, the S&P 500 didn't lose 18%. It lost over 50% from what we call peak to trop. So uh, what was it? Uh, October of 07, I think is the is the peak of the market to April-ish, April, May of 09, from the top of the market to the bottom, the S&P 500 lost over 50%. So if I'm an, an, uh, an investor, I'm thinking, hey, 18 to 20, that's my jam. I can do that. Well, what you just signed up for, or what you thought you signed up for was that, that regular move, but what you got was almost 2x, almost 3x at that point right. of, of what you signed up for. Well, and, and that to me, that right there, what you're talking about, I think is the thing that people have to think about because it's really easy when you just hear a soundbite that says, oh, well, index funds are going to outperform X percentage of time. So you should just do that. That soundbite is like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And then when you start digging a little deeper and really understanding your objectives, I'm going to say that when you get 20 years out from retirement and then 10 years out from retirement and then eventually five years out from retirement, that your goals for the money that you have are dramatically different than the goals for the money when you are young and wanting to see those big shifts and the big, right. big changes and the growth, because that's what's exciting. You know, the, the thing that happens is that the closer you get to retirement, the harder it is to actually recover from losses. And so right. it gets more and more important approaching and then after retirement to take a preservation of principle type of approach. And it's, it's almost counterintuitive because there's the feeling of, well, if I get big yield, then it, it doesn't matter. I can just spend more. But the problem right. is, again, when you go back to the efficient uh, frontier, and I want you to spend some time on this, is that 
there's not necessarily a direct correlation between the risk that you're taking and the return that you're getting. And I find, right. you know, as we're sitting with clients and talking through options in their portfolio, sometimes this is actually the biggest aha that they have. So would you mind pulling back up just the screen that shows that 1960 to 2010? Yeah, number. So what's interesting on this chart, and I'm going to walk through it just a little bit for those of you who are listening that don't have the visual, is that if you look at the 100% equity, your standard deviation is right at about 15%, maybe just right. above it. But when you look at your actual yield, it's less than 10. So let's call that 9.8 or something in that range. Right. Whereas if you go to a blended portfolio that is substantially, I would say that that portfolio is bond heavy, although Very it's still much. has equities, right? right. Um, what would you say that is, Eric? Probably like 20% in equities and 80% in bonds right there? Yeah. Yeah. Very, you, very, very, very conservative. Yeah. So if you look at the portfolio there, the amount of standard deviation that you're taking is right about 9% and right. your yield is 8%. So when you start looking at that, I'm taking, if I'm going all equities, I'm taking 50% more risk, right? And I'm eking out maybe 20% more return, right? Like I went from eight to not quite 10, but I'm, I'm saying instead of, you know, right. that- Instead of that, 9%, you're going to 15. Right. And, and keep right. in mind that that 15 is the average of all of it. Right. And so I'm saying I am willing to accept a 55% drop somewhere in here so that I can get 2% more over time. Right? right. If I manage to select the right years that that works out for me. Right. Because here, I mean, 2010, if I'm trying to retire in 2010, I have not recovered from my 2008 loss at this close. time period. Not even close. Right? Right. And so what that says is like, I look at this and for me, even though I like high yield, I'm excited by high yield. I like to see big returns and growth. I mean, those are the things that drive me when I look at it. I am not willing to take on that much more risk for such a small incremental return. I'd rather, I'd rather do something where I have more control or I'm more deliberate and right. I'm, I'd be okay. I mean, over time, I'm, I'm fine with an 8% rate of return as opposed to nine and a half if I don't have to deal with those swings. Right. Well, and I think one of the things we've become obsessed about, and maybe it's just me, uh, but I've been obsessed with it about it for probably 30 years now, is this idea of efficiency. Like, am I doing the thing that's going to get, what, what level of effort is going to get me the biggest yield, the biggest rate of return, the biggest impact? Uh, you know, I think your dad told me one time and, and sort of joked that if it weren't for women, men would all just live in caves and like carry sticks <laughs> all day, right? We, we, we work and do stuff because we want girls, right? So I, I think it sort of speaks to this idea that left to our own devices, men are pretty lazy. Like if, if, if we really come down to it. So what level of effort not, do I, I need? Those to words did not come out of my mouth for the record. Oh, hey, I, I, I'm, I'm introspective if I'm nothing else, right? I know my own self. But like what level of extra effort do I need to put forth to get the biggest rate of return? If I can just get a house, will that mean, get me the girl or is it a car? Or is it just, like, what do I need to do? What's the minimum level of effort, right? And I think that's it. It's what, what minimum level of effort, what minimum level of risk do I need to take on in order to get the rate of return that'll satisfy personally or what I'm trying to shoot for. And I think that what am I shooting for is the biggest part of that. Right. Well, I want to go back question. to something that you said about risk, right? Like what is, what, 
I think part of what happens is when we use terms like standard deviation or risk, we've been taught to almost dissociate from the consequences of those types of words. But when you think about what risk really is, if we define it properly, it is the probability of failure. So if, if I have to dramatically increase the probability that my plan is going to fail in order to maybe get higher returns, I'm not sure that always makes sense. And, and I'm going to say this a little bit differently with more concrete examples, just because I think it's easy, easier to attach to right. um, the most high risk. I'm going to use air quotes here investment that you could make is buying a lottery ticket, right? Because it's very inexpensive. But if you win, your return is astronomical for the, right. the again, I'm going to use air quotes, investment that you made, right? right. So level when you of effort about, to level of return, right? Right. So the risk that you're taking is huge because the likelihood that you're going to win is very, very small, but your return is also huge if you actually land it, right? But right. the likelihood of that happening is as close to zero as you can get, right? Whereas if you look at making a different choice, right? You may put in a dollar and get your dollar plus another dollar back, right? And that has much smaller risk, but the likelihood that you're going to get it is substantially higher. So at some point you kind of have to get to a place where you say the amount of risk that I'm willing to take, my, the willingness that I have for my plan to fail, right? And, and for me not to hit my goals, like you have to cap that somewhere because most of us are not comfortable with unlimited risk or an investment that has, you know, the, the possible returns of a lottery ticket, but the likelihood that I'm going to get it is small, right? Because there is no world where right. it says in order to increase my chance of success, I have to increase my chance of failure. It makes yeah, more sense. Yeah, but that's how we've been conditioned. Oh, absolutely. Right. And that's why I think this conversation is so important because we need to get back to a place where we say, okay, I need some degree of predictability in the strategies that I am pursuing so that I can actually build a plan around that with a high likelihood that the execution is going to happen on the time frame I need, regardless of what happens in the outside world. And to me, that's why money managers ultimately make sense. Well, and I think that's the, that's in my case or my opinion, that's the case for the advisor, because then it says the advisor can come along with the managers and say, look, for this bucket of cash, like if you want to go shoot for the fence, it's great, but let's have certain parts of your portfolio that are the responsible adults part. Like let's, let's adult all day long with these pieces. And then let's take this other component and let you go play, or let's shoot for the fences on this one, or let's, let's be strategic with where we place our risk. And I think that's the other conversation we keep having too with clients is cost is only importance in the absence of value. So if there's certain things that look, let's just go by the index. Like we don't, we don't need this component of our portfolio to, to, to be, be right to be expensive. Let's go cheap here. Let's go expensive here because we're getting what we want for it, right? Risk. And I think is the same thing as cost. What, how much extra money am I willing to spend for what other level, for what level of management or insight or risk control or or guarantees, right? Yeah. And so I think that's where having that sort of third set of eyes comes in and says, okay, let's, let's don't just say everything is black or white. It's all managers or no managers, right? Let's, let's be picky and choosy with how we do it because the good managers are looking at, I'm going to bring up this stupid chart. 
right? The efficient frontier is this, is this curve, right? It's up and down. But if you look at a 1970 through 1979, this green line in the middle, because of the market in 1970 through, through, the, through almost uh, the beginning of the 1980s, you took increasingly high amounts of risk and got no return. Nothing for it. Right, you, you would have had the same no rate of return in bonds as equity. And there's no predicting exactly where the return is gonna come from. Right, right. right? Whereas so, in 2010, the best thing you could have done for most of the decade would be in 100% bond portfolio. Who would have predicted that decade that the bonds were a better deal than, than equity? Than equities, yeah. And right. you know, I think, I think this also goes to like understanding that there is no one right answer because it's so easy to just carte blanche say, oh, well, that's what everyone should do. And the reality it isn't, right? Because I think about even just like, I know this is a ridiculous comparison, but think about fashion. Some people are conservative, some people are eclectic, some people are, you know, want fitted clothes and other people just want comfort. So part of, I think, investing is understanding what is it that you actually want? Because it's easy to say, like, the only thing you should care about is getting the highest yield. But in my experience, that's not what people actually care about. Sometimes we talk to people and they want to be the richest person in the universe. Other times we talk to people and they just want to be comfortable. So, you know, I, I think the investment strategies and the managers or whether you go index fund, it really needs to be customized to your particular outcomes because we don't all want the same thing. And I can say, even looking at our clients, they aren't all working with the same money manager, right? Part of our job as advisors right. is to do the research on the money managers out there and understand what are their specialties? When are they good? How are they good? And get diversification even across money managers. And so frequently, I mean, we see kind of our clients end up not all over the map, but they end up with very customized bespoke solutions for where they are because it doesn't make sense to have just the cookie cutter park it and leave it plan because of their particular circumstances. Well, and, it, and it, just to close out on this, I think that we joke that uh, at least 50% of our job is counseling. The other 50%, maybe the other 20% is math, I'm not sure. But 50% of our job is at best counseling. And part of that counseling job is how do we build a plan that you'll stick with? Because if you're shooting for the moon and then you freak out and get out and you're in cash for a decade, you've, you're worse off than if you'd never gotten in. And right. so part of it is finding that happy meaning of medium of sort of what will get you, what will keep you in the game. Because winning is about staying in the game. Being invested is about being invested and, and making adjustments and adjusting to what's going on in the, in the, in the day and in the decade, but you got to stay in the game. Right. Money's not math. It's human behavior. Exactly. And that's why it's so important is finding just exactly like you said, Eric, that that's why understanding human behavior and what drives it is just as important as the math. Yeah, absolutely. Good so point. where can they find you, Mary? Uh, I am on Instagram and Facebook as uh, at the wealth woman. And you can always just DM me if you have a question and we'd love to hear from you. What about you, Eric? Yeah, uh, Facebook and Instagram as well at Economics with Eric. And then on LinkedIn, you can just DM me there as well. Awesome. So, Thanks for listening. Thank you guys. Have a great one.